0: Good afternoon everyone and this is part eight, the very final part of our eight part presentation on the birth of the English nation. Uh, Brought to you by your lovely presenters Paul and Callum Waite. Callum is looking incredibly warrior-like today as much as anybody could look like a warrior. So how are you feeling today my son?
1: I'm very good thanks Pops, how are you?
0: yeah you look you look look amazing you really look like someone who should be in a shield wall or or possibly beating the shit out of somebody in the shield wall which will be very relevant when we get on to hastings and how the saxons managed to lose which i think is probably a good way of putting it so this is our very last show today it's been um a g- incredible journey for callum and i actually um we've never actually done anything quite like this before to be honest and i think um I hope you will all agree we've done quite a good job and we've learnt a lot. Uh, we've learnt a lot about lots of things, about ourselves and each other, and how we get on together and, and also a lot of history. So uh, there's a lot a lot will come out of this. And I hope that you've all enjoyed it as well and it's inspired you to read and to be more proud of your heritage uh, and to have greater understanding and not also to just um, accept things that you were taught. So the things I know today, for instance, which I've accepted uh, for years, for 60 years, and I now know uh, are not necessarily true. So, uh, it's January 1066. Edward the Confessor has died. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that on his deathbed, and I, I believe it's true to say that even the Normans don't doubt this, uh, that Edward the Confessor did name uh, Harold Godwinson as his heir. Uh, I, I don't think there's any credible Factual evidence to suggest he didn't do that, and as I say, my understanding is that at no point did the Normans themselves doubt that. What um, what their their grievance was was twofold. One was um, prior claim, I guess. So, if you like, it didn't really matter what he said because the will was already written or something. And the second one, which was probably incredibly important, when we get on to what happened to Harold. during his death throes and afterwards, is the huge, and I think this is true, uh, the huge betrayal uh, that William felt about what he saw was uh, Harold breaking his blood oath. And I don't think one can uh, overestimate that. Um, I think in, in today's age, we don't really live our lives uh, on the concepts of honour. Callum and I do our best to, to be fair to us. We're very old fashioned in that. In fact, I think both of us find it quite frustrating. We can't just go and kill people we don't like. um, Because that would be much easier to deal with than having to put up with the crap you have to put up with sometimes from people. But there we are. Uh, Nothing to do with history, but it's a relevant point anyway. So we're going to bring back fighting and battles and swordplay. Yeah, Uh, I think Calumni are going to do that. So, Harold Godwinson was uh, named uh, Edward the Confessor's uh, uh, replacement, successor. And... uh, Fact. First interesting real fact of the day: uh, Harold Godwinson was the first ever monarch to be crowned in Westminster Abbey. So, uh, and and it's true to say that most of the of the ceremony uh, that took place that day is has been repeated uh, for a thousand years, nearly a thousand years, 954 years to be precise. Um, so that's quite interesting. Um, so Harold took over the throne at a. Really, quite a troubles, troubling would be a good word. I was going to say terrible, but perhaps troubling is a better word. Uh, a troubling time to be English uh, It's like enemies circling everywhere. Clearly, Edward the Confessor's inability to produce an heir um, was was critical in all of this. Um, it's also, I think, quite interesting just to bring up to, to people up to up to speed with sort of what who else was kicking around. Uh, we had. Um, Edgar Atheling, who was 15 years old at this point, uh, who went on to live for 75 years actually, and uh, he was the grandson of Edmund Ironside. And um, we also uh, had a, a guy who will go on to be quite relevant in terms of succession and how all the houses sort of tied up together, which is uh, a guy who was called Ed- Edward the Exile or Edward Atheling. Um, who was uh he was again uh he was the son of Edmund Ironside and um was basically um because of the victory of canute uh effectively fled to hungary and lived most of his life in hungary but he does prove to have a legacy so it's always it's always interesting i think one of the things you did very well last week callum is uh it was really good the way that you uh, introduced Harold Hardrada into this, and I think um, the, the whole events that led up to 1066 are like this intricate tapestry uh, mm. of things that have come together to create this amazing series of events. And and I think you know trying to make sense of it all is is hopefully something we're you know we're really going to do. Any comments on that?
1: Yeah, no. Um... I guess, like, for my part, just for just for the viewer's interest, I would just like to add a couple of um, facts here and there. So, as you said, um, Harold Godwinson was, was crowned king. The coronation took place on the 6th of January, 1066, as you said, at the newly built um, Westminster Abbey. Um, one interesting thing to mention is that Westminster Abbey was actually built in Norman style, um, which... Was probably quite uh maybe controversial for the for the rest of the people in England. I don't know if they yeah. would have seen it as controversial. They might just yeah. thought it was a really nice building. Yeah, grand, Who knows? I think, yeah. yeah, just and just a little bit of trivia on Harold Harder because I think these things are very interesting, especially for people that are interested in history in general. So Harold Harder spent a lot of time traveling around um during his life. By the time of the Battle of Stamford Bridge, which we're going to come on to today, he was actually 51 years old. So, I mean, it's not like he was 25 or 30 years old or anything like that. And um, I think, um, just off the top of my head, this isn't so exact, but I think Harold Godwinson was 47. So both men were very no, seasoned. Was he? I, I, I know he was in his 40s, though. 44. Definitely. Was 44. Thank you. Um, yeah, so Harold Rada spent time in Constantinople and was actually the captain of the Varangian Guard. Which I think is a very, very cool, interesting fact. I mean, yeah. um, and, and he dealt with a lot of, um, of, of battles there um, under, you know, the reign of the, the people of, of Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, he uh, acquired a massive wealth for himself. So Harald Hardrada was a, an extremely wealthy man. And by the time he came back to Norway, um, yeah, he, he was extremely powerful and wealthy man. And he had some of the greatest. Uh, warriors um, from Europe and the
0: Mediterranean with him at the time. Okay, thanks for that, chap. Um, so, uh, really, old, poor old Harold didn't really have a time, any chance to do anything, um, uh, you know, administratively or in terms of uh, anything other than military, really. And as we said last week in the last episode, uh, he, was, he was really unrivaled in terms of the choice uh, to replace the Confessor, basically because he was uh, the greatest military leader um, that was available to the Saxons, and uh, the threats from all sides, north and south, were immense. I think it would be Mm. true to say, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, that uh, the perception at the time was actually that the Norwegians under Hardrada uh were a bigger threat than the normans do you think that's true
1: i i definitely think that this is the case um i would like to just to, to mention though apparently um edward the confessor he went into a coma before he died and apparently when he, he he woke from his coma briefly before he died and apparently he did say then that he wanted godwin sorry he wanted Harold Godwinson to become king of England. Apparently, he did say this himself. Um, but no, no, you're, you're completely right. Um, Harold had rather, as we said, he had built quite an extremely fearsome reputation. Um, whether it was true or not, um, sort of the rumours going around at the time was that he was the largest man in, in Europe. Mm. Um, apparently, apparently he was around seven feet tall. A bit less, which, I think. You know. Yeah, he would have been a bit less, but you can imagine people would have just said he was seven foot tall. He might have said he was over seven foot tall. You, yeah. mean, you know how things things get embellished, but um, obviously it would have been extremely rare in those days. Um, apart from anything else, just because the population was was so much smaller. Um, so yeah, he was he was a massive man. He was a great um, warrior. He had, you know, great renown. To, to reach the the Varangian Guard, for anyone that doesn't know, was sort of like an the yeah. elite guard of Constantinople which was one of the most powerful places in the world at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And to become the captain of that guard, you would have had to have been so fearsome. Um, So, yeah, he he had uh, over 10,000 soldiers in his army and himself was an absolute massive mountain of a man. So I, I think definitely you can say that they were more concerned about the Norwegians than they were about the Normans.
0: Yeah, so Harold Hardrada, I think, was generally re- re- regarded at the time as being the greatest warrior in Europe. I think, I think that is, that is uh, a correct accolade. Um, so just to set the scene, um, so basically Harold is king for about nine months. Uh, uh, the Norwegians um, basically run around uh, doing quite a lot of damage uh, in the north, uh, skirmishing. Uh, and unsettling the population. Uh, and interestingly, um, completely contradictory to contrary to Harold's, in my opinion, reckless behaviour towards the Normans, uh, his his approach towards Hardrada was very very measured, uh, calm mm-hmm. and responsive, and also quite brilliant. I think. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's worth pointing out for the listeners that. Um, was quite interesting in all of this and I remember as a little boy uh I used to be quite outraged that Tostig uh who was the brother of Harold uh basically was on Harold's side Harold Hadrada's side um and you know that that treachery was was obviously quite significant and must have played quite a big part in the overall schematic of the year so um we basically get to was it september i think Callum, or october when September. The bridge. so we get to september um, we get to september uh, 1066 and we've basically got several thousand troops uh under the command of harold hardrada uh running around yorkshire effectively uh so it's not chelsea football club unfortunately um so uh I think when yeah you know, when you talk about the, uh, the the battle of Stamford Bridge it, it doesn't necessarily conjure up the part of England that, it, that it's in, uh, but to put this into perspective you know we're talking about uh, a site not that far from York, uh, you know just to put this <coughs> into, into perspective geographically, and and I think um, it would be true to say uh, that Hardrada was was in uh, the area with uh, his troops. And effectively, um, the Saxons crept up on them. Uh, that, I think that's probably a good way of putting it. So they took the the, the Norwegians by surprise, and and yeah. I think I think that was instrumental in the overall success. So, what can you can you talk us through the battle, old chap? That'd be good.
1: Yeah. No, definitely. Um, I just want to take a step back a second, just because I think it's it's really important so people understand. You know exactly why this is taking place. So, Tostig, who was Harold's younger brother by just a couple of years, was originally the Earl of Northumbria. Um, but he, unlike his brother Harold, was an extremely popular man. Um, there's some great accounts by him about how they say you know he was he was tall, he was strong, yeah, yeah. he was intelligent. Um, you know Tostig pr- probably not so much like his brother, not not so clever. During his reign as, as Earl, he he doubled t- the taxes which obviously made him extremely unpopular, and they were to the point where, you know, the people were going to revolt against him. So Harold himself actually supported um, his brother to be replaced, thinking his brother was a numpty, essentially. <laughs> so he, his, his brother got replaced by a man called Morcar of Northumbria, yes. who was also the brother of Edwin, who was the Earl of Mercia. So um, this is why Tostig, you know, ended up with Hadrada, said to Hadrada, I will support you. In taking over England so this is this is where they, they went and I think it's, it's also very important to, to mention that Haldrada and Tostig actually won a, a massive battle in the north they defeated um, the, the combined armies of, of Northumbria and Mercia at the Battle of Fulford which is near um, York today and this took place on the 20th of September 1066 um, While Harold got word of this while this was happening, and Harold, as you said, very quickly and very stealthily led his army north on a forced march from London, Um, and they reached Yorkshire in just four days' time, um, and caught Hadrada completely by surprise on the 25th of September in the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Um, They took them so by surprise that apparently only uh, about half of the Vikings and the people under Tostig... didn't had didn't even have time to put their armor on which was obviously massively beneficial um, as this obviously pays he, a huge part in in, um, in battle so uh, initially um, Harold Godwinson's army sort of cut through the Vikings definitely you know put a, set a lot of panic in place um, several of them fleed and um, what was really um, you know could have been a potentially turning point of the battle was apparently um, a massive um, Dane. Could have been Hardrada himself. Um, actually, stood on the bridge of of Stamford Bridge, um, bare chested with a massive Dane axe, um, and single-handedly, very sort of Battle of Thermopylae style, um, just cut down the Saxons as they were coming, which which um, allowed the Vikings under Hardrada time to sort of regroup, um, you know, form their shield wall. Um, and, and for a brief time, it lo- you know, it, was, it, it could have been either way. Um, ultimately, um, uh, uh, while this was happening, the, the, the Viking on the bridge was so um, impressive that uh, legend has it that a man snuck under the bridge and uh, thrust his spear up through the bridge that went right up into the Dane and wounded him enough that then he was cut down. Ultimately, we know that um, Harold Godwinson won the day um, and his brother Tostig and Harold Hadrada were both killed at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Um, just on one f- f- like final note with this, which I think is, is uh, quite a cool little tale. Right, so I think a really interesting in- um, thing that happened right before the Battle of Stamford Bridge, which I think is a really nice little uh, nice little fact, is um, apparently when they saw Godwinson's battle approaching them at Stamford Bridge, a single man rode up to Harold Hadrada and Tostig, and said to Tostig, you know, if you, if you throw away your allegiance to Hadrada, you can have your old him of Northumbria back. And Tostig said, what's in it for Hardrada?" And he said, um, the rider replied, seven feet of English ground as ah. he is taller than other men. Um, and then he rode back to the Saxon horde. And Hadrada was very impressed by this rider's boldness and turned to Tostig and said, who was it? And Tostig replied that the rider was Harold Godwinson himself.
0: Oh yes, I heard that. And I, heard. I just
1: thought, what a, what a great and bold thing for him to do to, for, just to show the, um you know, the, the balls on, on Harold Godwinson to, to ride up single-handedly mm. to the greatest warrior in, in all of Europe mm. and, uh, and his brother, who was a formidable man on his own and sort of stare them in the eye and, and with such wit and, and, and bravery is, um, this really tells you a lot about, about Harold Godwinson as a man.
0: Yeah. No, I was, I'm familiar with that story. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, quite quite something, amazing people. So, uh, Stamford Bridges won, yes? So we've won the battle? Yep. Uh, yeah, as you say, uh, Hardrada is slain, uh, Tostig is slain. Uh, probably one of the greatest victories in history at that point, probably by far the greatest victory in English history. Um, yep. Uh, and, 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 and it's, it's uh, very sad in many respects. Um, you know, uh, it could be argued that Harold Godwinson deserves to go down in history as a great man, uh, a great patriot, uh, one of the first great Englishmen, uh, a fantastic warrior, a fantastic leader who saved our country from threat. Uh, and then, we, of course, we had Hastings, which changed our great country forever, so yeah, um, if we then if we then set the scene again, uh, but now to the south, um, so what well, will be nice, Callum, and I know that you and I both love this um, let's yeah. uh, I'd like you to talk and, and educate the listeners about uh, how uh, the region of northern France that we know today as Normandy mm. actually became. Uh, effectively a viking state so when did that happen how, when did that happen and how did it happen
1: right so there was a a great viking warlord called rollo um and for anybody that's you know a, a fan of the viking show out there it's the same rollo that is played very well by clive standon mm-hmm. in the Viking show um that's uh, funded by the yeah, history absolutely.
0: channel
1: yeah rollo was um a great viking chieftain we don't know exactly when he was born, um, but we do know it was between 846 and 860, somewhere in Scandinavia. We don't even know exactly what country. Anyway, um, they started raiding what is what is you know came to be known as uh, Normandy quite savagely um, in the in the 900s, um, and uh, to the point where the the leaders of of northern France, uh, I think it was. Um, what was his name? Um, something the simple. You know, you know. Charles, Charles the Simple. Charles the
0: Simple, yeah.
1: King Charles the Simple basically made a deal with him and said, you know, please, please stop destroying everything. Please stop raiding our lands. I will give you um, what was it not at the time known as the Duchy of Rouen. Rouen. I yeah. will give you Rouen, yeah, for the for the snazzy people out there. <laughs> um, I will give
0: you,
1: I'll give you the Duchy of Rouen. Um, and um, you know you can defend it for me, and you can become a nobleman there, and uh, you'll be one of the most important people around, and you'll have lots of money, etc., etc. Rollo thought, okay, this is a pretty good deal. Um, I'll have um, lots of money, which I've always been afterwards. So I'll have a, a great base of power. Um, you know, lots of of honor laid upon me. Sound, sounds absolutely great. Um, the name Normandy itself. Just comes from the name Northman. Mm. So um, they, they were known as Northmen. Normandy is Northman's land. Um, it's Normandy. Very good. Um, so, so, yeah, this is how Normandy came came to be. Um, Rollo himself is an extremely important figure. Um, and, and leading on today, uh, one of the reasons he is so important is because he is a direct ancestor of william the conqueror who or the, or obviously is around, extremely... <laughs> well yeah yeah so so uh he is uh, william the conqueror is a descendant of of rollo mm. so william the conqueror in his blood is by large part um viking as is both harold godwinson and harold Hadrada. Mm.
0: yeah hence hence my um reference i think it was to last week that in, in many respects you know to see uh, either of the battles of stamford Stamford bridge and Hastings as being uh, English against Viking, English against French for instance is is completely wrong uh, yeah and it, it would be yeah something something I, I want to say before you interrupts me um, so um, I think it would be more accurate to say it was uh, a feud effectively between North Europeans. Uh, and, and possibly more accurately, actually, in many respects, you could say um, a greater sort of Scandinavian uh, situation. If we take yeah. uh, Harold Godwinson himself, um, and let's remember that his mother was uh, Gylther Thor- Thorkellsdottir, who was herself the daughter of Thorkel. who was a great Viking um, in the uh, early 11th century. Uh, it's very interesting, this, that when H- Harold effectively got married, and let's use that word, although uh, you, oh, you could argue it's not technically true, when Harold uh, bonded, let's call it that, with uh, Edith Swanneck, uh who was uh, uh, the mother of his children, uh, and, and uh, goes down in legend as the woman who identified his body, so-called uh, uh, Hastings, um, I don't know if you know this, Callum, they didn't actually get married in a church. Uh, they did the old-fashioned Viking ceremony of, um, I think it's clasping hands or something it's called. You... Yeah,
1: So it would be, be very similar to just like a pagan hand fasting of today. Um, it was called something, um, that they referred to it in, in those times, something like the Danish. What's very interesting is by this point, um, Viking and Saxon culture had become so in, entwined it wasn't like back in the days of alfred the great or like king athelstan where it was it was still like a bit of a divide between the saxons and vikings you know there was very much like the anglo-saxons and the vikings even though there were you know some um some treaties here and there by this point they were so intermingled obviously in large part because of of king canute um there was so much viking blood um, mixed with Saxon blood in England that it was actually considered a legal marriage still to have I get essentially what would be considered today like a pagan hand fasting or back yeah. in, in those days what they called the Dane way of marriage.
0: Okay. So um so moving on. Um I don't know if you know this, so um you know, I, I hope the listeners forgive us because we don't we can't know everything, can we, Callum? Um how uh how scandized want to call it? Did uh, Normandy become, as far as I'm aware, they they spoke a type of French, didn't they? So it's yeah, not it's they, not like it's not like all the Normans were going around going uh, uh, talking in Norwegian or anything, were they?
1: No, no. So by, by the time of 1066, um, Normandy would have was definitely very very French, so to speak. Um, so that they would have spoke the same languages as the rest of uh, of, of France. Um, and the political system was the same as the rest of France. They had, um, you know, um, dukes and marshals as opposed to earls and thanes and housecarls, which was more, um, you know, more seen in um, both Britain and in um, Scandinavia. So they definitely had, you know, that very French style. I guess what sort of separated um, Normandy was, um, I don't know if it was because of the. The um, the sort of the might and the the natural aggression and alpha maleness in their blood through Rollo, I don't know. But they were definitely sort of by the time of 1066, they were probably the most powerful um, region in France. Um, They were definitely sort of, um, the rest of France would have definitely wanted them on on their side. And I know that um, King King Henry, who was the Henry of, um, the King of France at the time, Mm -hmm. was... um, very keen to always make sure that whoever was um, in charge of Normandy would also be aligned with the crown.
0: Yeah, I think, um, just again, just to educate uh, the listeners, um, you know, when, when you refer to the King of France, this is a very different uh, France to what we understand today. So, you know, you would have had right. probably 10 different kingdoms, uh, you know, all of which to some extent consider themselves to be uh, Rivaling uh, Henry, for instance, the, the central king. Yeah. Um. So anyway, so let's roll on. So um, we've got um, so William, William, uh, William, who became uh, known as William the Conqueror, uh, and also often referred to as William the Bastard, uh, or shall I say, bastard, if I, for, for uh, the posh people there, William the absolute bastard, <laughs> William the absolute bastard, uh, William, yeah. the, William the absolute bastard. Uh, his father was uh, the Duke of Normandy, uh, a guy with a rather wonderful title of Robert the Magnificent. Uh, mm-hmm. a- and his mother, uh, and Robert never actually married uh, his mother. No. Uh, and his what was her? she's called La Hilva or something, wasn't she? Uh, can you remind me? Her lever. La Her lever. That's right. Her. her- yeah,
1: it was spelled H E R L E V A. So I'm not exactly an expert on how the Normans would have pronounced that, but it was H E R L E V A. Um, yeah, and what's what's interesting, obviously, in that why why William was called William the Bastard, right up until apparently his death behind his back, was because um, yeah, his his mother might have even just been a concubine. Mm. Um, either way, um, you know, the, William was had out of wedlock and um William's grandfather on his on his mother's side was um was a tanner so you know really nothing um nothing special at all uh, apparently one one um interesting and, and brutal story I'll quickly tell just to sort of um set you know give you an idea of what william was like um a, a very vengeful and I would say almost paranoid man what one one, one thing's for sure he, he, he throughout his life he had a huge chip on his shoulder apparently um once when he was a younger man to taunt him he was um he was uh, away having um a banquet in some hall and um d- deliberately the people there to mock him put hides and uh, uh, hides all over the walls to, you know to remind him that his, his grandfather was just a simple tanner. um he William got so angry about this that he had all of the men in the halls hands and feet chopped off Thanks, which is a uh, you know uh,
0: very very savage i think think, um quite an interesting um uh insight into william is uh apparently when news broke that godwinson had become the king uh william (sighs) william became silent and basically um went into contemplation and shut his room and didn't come out for several hours uh, before right. he basically came out and sort of said, "Right, we'll get the we'll get the bastard," you know, um, you know, he's he's done the dirty on me. And then, of course, um, all through uh, 1066, uh, the Normans are basically plotting to uh, invade Britain, at, well, England. Yeah. And um, the only reason it took them so long to get there was was effectively the weather, etc. Um, yeah. And obviously that. It's it's amazing uh, the vagaries of of fate because probably uh, I think it would be true to say with my imp- even greater knowledge of Hastings today than it used to ha- used to have, um, it's almost unbelievable that 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 Harold lost. You know, it, it, it's, it's actually a reflection on a number of improbable events, all coming together um, to create the most. Uh, in fact, I'm. I'm almost quite angry about this, um, and uh, I don't. I don't know where I'm going to go with this next. But um, so anyway, so we we um, so we got a situation where uh, Sir William was the first cousin once removed of Edward the Confessor. Um, so uh, he 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 was you know he had a claim in terms of blood to some extent, but more importantly, um, he believed that Edward had chosen him as his successor and 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 as i say more importantly godwinson uh basically couldn't become the king anyway because effectively godwinson was his number 2 so how could godwinson be you know so godwinson uh couldn't possibly become the king above him because this was a matter of honor and and whatever yeah so um you know i think one of the things i'd really like to talk about today is not just the mechanics of the battle but also you know, to get into some depth about why it was so almost ridiculous that that Harold lost. You know, I I I think you know how how if you if you look in Google for instance, and you you just very quickly read about Hastings, it you know it, yeah. it, it sort of refers to it as this sort of probably the most important battle in English history. Uh, yes, I think it's true to say that most historians treat like 1066 as being almost like the start so if you imagine that you know you've got BC and AD uh, and AD starts you know with the birth of Christ then to some extent yeah. English royal history starts at 1066 and so you've got a ridiculous situation for instance uh, and I was watching a very interesting video about this last night where you've got uh, Edward the First, for instance uh, who 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 was renowned, who was called the the hammer of the Scots, as you probably know. But of course, there'd already been two Edwards before him. We had uh, Edward who had been martyred, and then Edward the who was effectively the Confessor. And how they were, how the Confessor was referred to in this documentary, which amused me greatly, was he was referred to as Edward the minus two, because obviously uh, Edward I uh was was eleven hundred and whatever he was um yeah sure so uh you know that's that's it's very interesting how we're we're taught for some- i don't know why it's almost like um the anglo saxon period from uh four fifty to ten sixty six it's almost like it doesn't exist nor it's it's somehow substandard to what happened afterwards which i i think hopefully if nothing else you and I would have played some part in changing that so yeah we we have a situation where uh effectively uh the normans let's let's fast forward the normans uh, have arrived in england they landed at a place called pevensey uh which you and i have both been to but you were probably too young to remember um yeah and incredibly uh harold godwinson having just secured this amazing victory, then makes probably, you could argue, the greatest military blunder of all time. I I think that that is Mm. something you could say. Now when you consider, as far as I'm aware, uh, the Saxons had amassed uh, 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 a force of something like 15,000 men uh, that were ready to fight against uh, Hardrada. As as yeah. well as that, and I think the correct word is muster. Uh, you then had the the uh, the system uh, through the shires and the fjord of, of 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 actually raising further troops. So you probably had a situation where Harold, if he played his cards right, probably could have called on at least twenty five thousand troops.
1: Hundred percent.
0: As far as we're aware. William lands in England with about seven and a half thousand troops, but significantly, um, quite a lot of cavalry. So he's 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 only got seven and a half thousand people, but he's he's got a lot of horses. Uh, I think the other thing worth pointing out, uh, and again, uh, so when when I finish, you come in on me on this one. Um, I think it's generally considered that that although Hardrada was perhaps the greatest warrior. In, in sort of a combat situation in Europe, that Harold Godwinson was a was a better strategist uh, and, and, and that ultimately uh, Stamford Bridge was, was basically about being outsmarted. I think the considered opinion from what I can see from my research is that Godwinson met his match in William. So William was at least as good a strategist as Godwinson. Uh, and I guess to some extent, you know, um, the fact that William won, uh, to some extent, says t- tells it all, doesn't it? It's very difficult not to conclude. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, I think, it, in my opinion, I think the biggest reason why Harold Godwinson lost the Battle of Hastings was he underestimated William the Bastard or William the Conqueror as he became known after Hastings. Um, as you said, he had about 7,500 men, um, we also know that Harold Godwinson joins the battle with about 7,500 men on his side as well. So they're pretty even in number. Yeah, that's right. But, um, I'll, go, I'll go into more detail about this in, in a little bit, but um, Harold, as you said, could have called way more people. So Harold didn't hear about the the Norman landing until he was already about halfway down from, from um, Stamford Bridge back down to London. He was traveling to London and about halfway between he heard that they had landed. Now, what he could have done at this point was because he left all of all all of his Northumbrian and Mercian armies in Northumbria and Mercia. And when he found out about this, he didn't sort of send any of his scouts or anybody to turn around and tell the Northumbrian and Mercian armies to, you know, you know, pack, pack your bags and meet me at London. He just didn't do that. So he wasn't, didn't even have half his armies with him. He, he, d- he didn't have any of the armies of Northumbria or yeah, Mercia yeah, with exactly. him. Which is quite shocking, really. So you have to bear in mind, like, if he did, it would have been an overwhelming victory. I mean, there's no way I'd, 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 I'd see that you could... It was a pretty close battle anyway, as we'll get into. It wasn't mm. like it was clear-cut and William the Conqueror just destroyed them. Mm. The Saxon Shield Wall, apparently the Bretons of, of France yeah, yeah. in particular, that he who were under um, William the Bastard's lead, apparently they were, they were terrified by the ferocity and the, the the clinical precision of the Saxon shield wall just cutting through people and, you know, just terrifying men. I think you're back. getting
0: ahead of yourself there, if you don't mind me saying.
1: Yes, I am. I'm getting ahead of myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, as, as we say, it's, it's quite staggering. So if we just sort of... Um, if we just uh, try and give a, a, a picture of the scene. So, effectively, the Normans have come across the sea. Uh, they've landed on a beach. They've come up into Pevensey. Uh, there's this large area of land. Uh, and I think it. It's, it's, it's a bit like this. So, if we take the top of my hands as being the top of the hill uh, and the funnel, if you like, at the bottom of the hill. So, yep. um, what what is quite staggering is, uh, if I remember rightly, and as I say, I've been I've been to this battle, and I, it's very important. I tell this story because it's quite quite unbelievable, actually. Um, so you have this uh, this site that's it's up a hill, and then there was a copse, uh, <clears throat> and in order to escape from this area of land, which is now um, referred to as Battle or Battle Abbey, because William built an abbey on the site you then had to go through quite a narrow uh area of cops uh to to get into the wider world so in effect um what uh bearing in mind that william had limited provisions of course because you know he only had so many ships and he had obviously all these horses and men to feed um you could argue that actually all the saxons needed to do was to put enough people at the top of the road to stop the Normans going through the road, and that's all they had to do. You know, what, did yeah, you, what no, you, def- do you think? Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. A- apparently, as well, um, uh, several of um, William's advisors and generals wanted William to move further north before you know they got word that Harold had arrived at London. Um, but William. Absolutely refused to do so. He wanted to make sure that he had conquered everything between him and the sea, so that he could retreat back to Normandy if he needed to. Which, which, by the by the by the sounds of things, seemed like he he thought was a very real possibility. You've got to bear in mind as well as um as I said, William had been preparing to invade for for months and months. By this point, he actually wanted to invade in August, but he got word that um Harold Godwinson, very, obviously very cleverly. Had, complete, had fortified the south of England. He'd sent thousands and thousands of men all across the south coast of England. And basically, William was so put off by this that he just completely delayed the assault. It wasn't until he heard that Hadrada had invaded and that Harold Godwinson had taken his forces up north that William really had the, 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 um, the courage to invade in the first place. So... It's even documented that William, yeah, wouldn't have wouldn't have gone anywhere. So Har- right. Harold Godwinson had all the time in the world to to make things as much in his favour as he could have done, and he failed to do so, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing, um, which is quite staggering, and I hadn't really thought about it until yesterday when I was preparing for today's show, to be honest with you, is is um, effectively William had one roll of the dice. So actually, it didn't it didn't actually matter. Uh, so in theory, um, William could could have won the Battle of Hastings, and it and it didn't actually matter because all Harold actually had to do was not to die. That's all he yes. had to do. Yeah. All right? That's yeah. all he had to, do. And, and and arguably not even that. But if we say, you know, I, I think something we can say quite factually. As long as Harold didn't die, he could have lost that battle and it wouldn't have made any difference. Well, it would have made a difference. Obviously, the Normans would have beaten uh, the Saxons. But, you know, as we've, as we've talked about before at other shows, you know, we had, uh, I remember one particular uh, incident where we had something like 11 battles going on um, over a period of months of which the Saxons only won two. But it didn't stop mm. it didn't stop the king at the time still being alive at the end of the 11th battle uh oh yeah, so, yeah Alfred so,
1: the Great is a great example of this, isn't
0: it? So you know we've got a, a situation here where basically uh Harold's got the whole of England behind him, Williams you know controlling this quite small area of Sussex uh with you know quite a few you know some good troops you know amongst the finest in europe uh he's got seven and a half thousand men, and then unbelievably, Harold basically gives him almost an equal chance. Uh, because he lines up against him also with seven and a half thousand men. And I think, again, I I, I, I suspect knowing you, you've done quite a lot of research into the tactics of this. But although uh, on the face of it, Godwinson had the upper hand because uh, the the battlefield was on an area called Senlac. So it was actually called Senlac Hill. The Mm. Saxon troops were at the top of the hill uh, and the Normans were at the bottom of the hill. And I think, you know, conventionally, uh, anybody will know with any military history and strategy that the person who controls the top of the hill usually wins. Now, I think what's, um, what's a game-changer, I think, is quite interesting here, which is why I deliberately did this. So if you go back to the top of my hand being the top of the hill, uh, the, the Saxons were at the top of the hill, but they were confined into quite a small space, So they they didn't really have a lot of room to move. The Normans obviously had to go up the hill, but they had unlimited space. So this proved to be quite uh, fundamental, I would say, in the battle. So the battle started, Callum, at about nine o'clock in the morning. And I think, uh, and I'm sure you'll correct me here, because I'm not entirely sure of my facts here, but I think that um, by the standards of the day... Battles would not normally last more than about three hours. You know that was that sort yeah. of. And and of course, what was um, what was uh, amazing about the Battle of Hastings? It lasted nine hours. So it's one of the longest battles in his, world history up to that point. So um, yeah, we, we, you know, we if you could in probably about three minutes uh, try to mm. summarise uh, how you see how the battle went. So that would be really good.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's some contradictory accounts. And I think the contradiction comes from obviously when when the Normans won the Battle of Hastings, they um, quite unsuccessfully, in my opinion, um, tried to, you know, skew things in their favour as much as possible to make them seem like the honourable ones and the ones that were in the right. Um, I actually would you know, it's actually disputed nowadays whether Harold even did swear on holy relics, mm. um, you know, to, to, to be a, a knight of William. I think um, they definitely had some interactions and apparently Harold helped him in some ways in Normandy. But um, but a uh, yeah, I think a, a lot of this was probably, you know, Norman tinkering to make, you know, the Normans seem as just as possible. But yeah, so um, yeah. So as we know that the battle lasted all day started 9 a.m. on the 14th of October Um, what we know is that William had lots of archers lots of cavalry and lots of foot soldiers Um, whereas Harold had mainly foot soldiers and just a few archers now um, despite this um, Harold did very well for for quite a, a long time probably for the first half of the day um, although it was even Harold was probably slightly winning. Yeah, and this is actually quite remarkable, considering that there wouldn't have, been, uh, they wouldn't have seen a battle like this before The the Saxon, uh, the Anglo-Saxon and Viking way of battle, which was obviously uh, the only thing that had been seen on, on, um, in British British soil for the last few hundred years, you know, they, they, they didn't really utilize cavalry very much. It was all shield wall against shield wall with some sort of archers mixed in there. Um, so they'd never seen this sort of cavalry style before um so we know for the first half of the day harold's men formed shield wall they did very very well um it was very very frustrating for the normans to deal with this they they hadn't ever the the normans were used to being in battles and skirmishes in france in modern day france so they were used to fighting people with similar tactics as them Mm. whereas this sort of um you know i suppose you could say even say like roman um, infantry yeah, yeah. style of completely tight in, you know, shields, swords, yeah. um, and spears, um, and they actually quite terrified the Normans. As I said earlier, apparently that the Bretons that were fighting under under William were actually quite terrified that the, the, the Saxon uh, and Viking really men were were just large, brutal. Were sort of chanting as they were going forward, like cutting people down. Um, hardly any Saxons were going down at that time. Um, really when the, the, the time that the, the battle um, turned in, in William's favour was at one point, actually, it was actually sort of thanks to the Bretons in a way. So the Bretons all just turned and ran. They just completely ran from the battlefield, They were absolutely terrified. And in their sort of battle lust, then all the Saxons chased them. Mm. Now, that, What this led to was a perfect opportunity for then the cavalry of William to come in from yep. the side and just completely smash down... Um, portion of the shield wall now then when this happened harold's forces you know formed shield wall again very you know very good tactic um but william was clever enough now to to realize that this tactic could be used several more times Mm. in the battle so he actually feigned retreating several times to invoke this uh this charging reaction from harold's forces and every time he would send in the cavalry from the side smash harold's forces and, it, you know, it, it worked to the extent where in the end enough of Harold's forces were depleted yeah. that the, the tides had really turned in, in William's favour. And by this point, it turned into a little bit of a free-for-all, you know, but, but, but they, they'd lost the shield wall. Once they'd lost the shield wall, the um, the archers and the cavalry of William really are what won him the day. Um, and as I'm sure you'll want to get into to now, so I'll pass it back over to you, <laughs> what actually led up to the death of um, Harold
0: yeah so um yeah it's quite it's quite yes i think i said I totally agree with everything you said there, so um you know, you've got a um, really i suppose looking back on it even even given all of the blunders and the poor judgments uh, that that made up for the battle starting in the first place, um, probably if so I think probably the word that sums up the Saxon uh approach would be discipline it's a highly disciplined methodical robotic uh, approach which relied on teamwork and all of the people fighting together as a unit and I think what led to uh, the, the, the possibilities, and, but even then um, and I will say even then, I think that's a good way of putting it, um, was that the, uh, the Bretons, as you say, fled uh, enough, enough of the shield war went after them uh, and they were decimated, the whole of the people that, sh- that ran after them were all slaughtered um, and then, uh, effectively, as you say, the, the cavalry worked out how to nibble consistently at the edge of the shield wall to a point where the shield wall became less and less and less. But again, I mean, this is again, this is again, things you're not taught. So uh, we we have we've now got to six o'clock in the evening. Six o'clock in the evening, and from my reading, uh, the sun went down at six thirty. So, effectively, all the Saxons had to do was, firstly, not get Harold killed, right? They could have lost the battle. That would have been all right. That would not have been a game changer, necessarily. Uh, All they had to do was not to lose by 6.30. They could have lost the day in in terms of who really won. But all they had to do, if they got to 6.30, the battle would have ended, because that's how it was then. It would have been dark. Everyone would have stopped. So we got within half an hour of that situation happening. So I think that's really quite amazing. If we think about all the other uh, improbabilities which have led to this situation, all they had to do was to fight for another half an hour. As you say, um, probably looking back on it, some of the tactical naivety, uh, probably two main things led to the death of Harold, I would say. Firstly was the huge inequity in cavalry uh and And ultimately, which becomes incredibly ironical when you consider Poitiers Pressy Agincourt for instance um you know and uh you know the famous Welsh archers and the great victories of the English against the French, which were all based on uh fantastic tactics and the use of archers uh Harold basically lost because he was completely and utterly out artillery, I suppose you'd always say. Um, and so we have a situation and, there, and and no one knows this for certain but this is what i i believe this uh this is what i believe with some degree of certainty so um we know that somewhere probably around five o'clock uh probably uh uh an arrow from the norman archers uh wounds harold and i think that is the right word to use he is alive he hasn't died he didn't die from the arrow uh, it's gone into his his eye, or you know somewhere in his face. It has definitely impaired him to the point where he is no longer able to fight properly in his own defence. What what I believe then happens is his faithful retainer, his housecarls, uh, as you would expect, uh, formed formed circle or whatever you want to call it around him to protect him. Uh, and then you had an incredibly heroic final stand which would be very comparable to the old guard at Waterloo for instance you know where the battle is lost but the old guard refused to lie down Uh, and so you have the cream of Saxon nobility and the cream of Saxon soldiers uh, which included pretty much all of Harold's relations so his brothers uh, all the senior uh, nobles that fought in the battle basically um, they heroically died trying to save their king. Um, What we we do know is that not only was Harold slain, but because of the attitude of the Normans towards what they considered to be his uh, treachery, let's call it that, or betrayal, whatever you want to call it, um, he was decapitated, his right leg was severed, and most of his left leg was severed. He was left on the battlefield as a torso, uh, minus the bits that we've just referred to. Um, Harold's mother uh, basically came onto the scene and offered to buy uh, his body for his weight in gold. Uh, And quite incredibly for the time, bearing in mind that Harold was quite a large man, as you say, uh, the Normans refused to take the money. Uh, it's then unclear uh, As to what actually happened Some people think he was thrown into the sea uh, uh-huh. Basically uh, One legend is that William just said get rid of the bastard and throw him in the sea You know piece of whatever You know uh, that's what he deserves Yeah um, It's probably on the whole Generally considered that he was buried uh, Locally um, And that After the event minus his head Etc Uh he had some degree of christian burial and uh yeah. but, but there is even a legend that he didn't die there's even a, a legend going around that harold himself survived the battle and went on yep. to um to live uh, a life somewhere uh I, I, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me i have to say um so we have uh we have a uh this is supposed to be true so Ed, edith swan uh comes onto the battle scene uh apparently identifies the torso so-called because of some uh blemish or mark that would be known to her on harold's body um and that's and, and that's and that's basically where we get to then uh the the Witten um then basically declare that edgar Raffling is now the king um so the edgar Raffling, grandson sort of edmund ironside that we referred to earlier the 15 year old um, and I think, you know, uh, we, we, we we can't go on for very long now, but um we, we probably could go on for another twenty minutes to be honest. Um again, what Easily. what I what I find staggering, Callum, is not only how the hell did they lose in the first place, but how is it that uh so when you when you think about it, as many troops were stuck up north as were fought on the battle. Edgar Raffling oh. Edgar Raffling himself was alive. Uh, yeah. Yes, you know the Godwins had been decimated, but actually, the bloodline of the original pure kings was very much alive. Uh, yep. You had the whole, the whole, you know, the culture of the country, the whole, the whole uh, organization was still, you know, in theory very much alive. So I, I, it just does my head in to be honest with you. How, uh, how, even having having lost their king. How the people couldn't organise themselves to deal with the the Norman threat. Any any views on that?
1: Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. You're right. So you got to bear in mind that by the end of the battle, um, William only had half his army left. If that less probably, yeah. Um, so there, yeah, so there are probably about three thousand Normans in uh, Anglo-Saxon Britain, Anglo-Saxon England. Yeah, as, as you said earls Edwin of Mercia and Morcar of Northumbria were both still alive um you know so you had two powerful earls still alive with full armies behind their backs as you said actually bigger army than uh, than Harold wielded at Hastings um so uh, really quite frustrating and as I said I, I completely agree with you um, obviously as an English man it's actually it's amazing really how hastings was lost and i said it's i can only attribute it to harold underestimating william also um as you said harold making the mistake i don't know if in his head it was like a pride thing but he obviously thought you know i'm gonna go out on my shield or you know whatever but as you said he didn't have to win the battle of hastings it could have been considered a small skirmish King Alfred the Great, one of the greatest kings in English history, lost far more battles in his lifetime than he won. He won the most important ones, which meant that he ended up as King of England. But, you know, or King of Wessex anyway. But, um, you know, it just goes to show, doesn't it? You know, you don't have to win every single battle in your life. I don't know if he was just really proud or what, but really, really unfortunate.
0: One one thing I, I want to share with the listeners, because I think it's too... too um personal important not to uh to share today is um as a family we went to the battlefield um, when Callum was a baby actually um and it was one of the most uh remarkable experiences of my life and um you know I think it could generally be considered that I am a bit I'm a bit eccentric or something but uh you know I, I, I think I'm quite a sincere and genuine person so when I tell you what happened, Uh, I would ask all of you watching this programme to trust me that it was real. Or it was certainly real to me. So I turned up on the battlefield. uh, And all I can... The best way I can describe it, because it was so profound, was I could smell the horses. I could actually smell... And I could hear, in my head, I could hear the sound of shouts and sword fighting uh, and and, and hear galloping uh, and the smell of horses. And it was quite terrifying in some respects uh, because I've never had an experience like that before or since uh, so I was, let's say uh, and this is with witnesses so uh, I was incredibly disturbed by visiting the battlefield and um, we stayed uh, in, a, in a holiday camp called Camber Sands which was down the road uh, for I think seven days after that and every single night I had a nightmare uh where the battle basically was fought over again and I was obviously in it what is what is quite ironical um is that I've always assumed that I must have been on the side of the Saxons whereas uh, uh a review of our family tree it, it might suggest in fact we were on the other side which is um which is in itself quite a hard thing to take anything to say about that
1: yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to say, you know, what side we're on. I mean, I, we know that the, the our surname Wait comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word watcher, we talked about this a couple of episodes back. Um, obviously, to be honest, it, it's it's very it's very muddled because, um, obviously, you know, both of our our DNA is um is actually prim- primarily Scandinavian on, on the whole, um, compared to the other percentages. Obviously, we are massively Anglo-Saxon by blood as well. Obviously, ours is a bit, bit different because I'm mixed, in obviously, with my mother's. But, I mean, I mean, <laughs> although I haven't had my blood tested like you have, I mean, there's there's just as much Northern European um, blood through my mother's side. As, as you know, they're all redheads, for, for the listeners knowing. They're all pale, sort of red-headed people um, with lots of Danish and Norwegian in the blood. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it's hard to say. All I know is, in, in my heart, I, I have uh, someone that's done extensive research on on William the Bastard, Harold Hadrada, and Harold Godwinson. I feel the least, what's the word I'm looking for, like the least connection with William, by yeah, far. I agree, by
0: agree. F- yeah, I agree. Yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah.
1: I mean, I don't, I don't know. That, that can speak for itself, what anybody makes of that.
0: Is that, is that to them, you know? <laughs> no, I, 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 yes, yeah, so we, we can't really call it as much longer, but, uh, you know, I, no, I, I, I hugely uh, am on the side in my head of the Saxons. So, um, we're going to try and wrap up uh, as best we can uh, after our huge effort over eight hours of research and uh, bringing to you uh, the birth of the English nation. We've tried to bring you 616 years of really fascinating history which uh, has made us, in my opinion, the greatest country in the world uh, and the country that has most shaped the world, that brought the world democracy uh, and, and, and free speech and was the country that stopped slavery uh, and, and many other things. Uh, the, the, the country with the greatest number of inventions of any other country in right. the world. Uh, a country that makes great music, uh, does great business, um, a country to be proud of, and and I, I take solace. And this people might think this is a bit odd because I really am seriously disturbed over Hastings. I, I have it's actually been quite an effort for me to do this show because um, I, I have a massive psychological block. Um, I just my, my I, I'm so affected by it. I my 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 brain doesn't want to accept even now uh, what happened. So that, and that that might sound a really odd thing for someone to say. Uh, in the year 2020, but it is nonetheless true. How I, how I take solace in uh, being a citizen of our great country is that I say to myself uh, effectively what happened as a result of Hastings. And it's just worth noting, uh, and Callum and I may go on to do something about this, uh, the, the, the threat from Scandinavia was by no means extinguished as a result of 1066. So William had to put up with danish incursions for 20 years after he became the king uh, so the yeah. viking's didn't go away but what is the legacy of hastings is that england's uh, england's principal uh, relationship and tie had always been with scandinavia that that yeah. eventually became severed certainly by about 1087 and the principal uh relationship looking forward then became that with France uh, and it led us to um, effectively very much a saxon frank french frank Frank-ized, whatever the right word is uh, <laughs> frankisized i suppose frankisized country uh, language customs um, and of course led to uh, all the kings of england uh, after certainly probably by henry the First considering themselves to be also the kings of France. Um, So I think, you know, one of the legacies of Hastings is uh, it made England a more, maybe a more extrovert, cosmopolitan, outward-looking country maybe. Uh, That's something perhaps we could talk about together in a a new series we can do later on in the year. I think that would be a a fascinating thing to do. so, unfortunately, our king is dead. A king that deserves to be a hero, in my opinion. A king who should be regarded as one of the greatest English Patriots of all time. It should be Winston Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill, Elizabeth I, Harold Godwinson, perhaps, in that order. Uh, that's how how brilliant he was. Uh, I think he was extremely unlucky. Uh, may be ill-judged it's always very it's always very easy to criticize people after the event um, and as we say you know another half an hour and everything would have been all right and the vagaries of fate with the arrow and everything um but i'd like to thank you callum for your huge effort over the last eight weeks and uh your considerable insight and um very unique way of looking at things i think and and i think One of the things that makes our show, uh, I'd just like you to wrap up in 30 seconds when I finish saying this, I think one of the things which makes uh, you and I uh, able to deliver a programme like this, perhaps differently to how anyone else could, is you and I very much live our own lives on the basis of honour and principle and handshakes and trust, um, and all those sort of warrior qualities. Um, And certainly, as you know, I've always said to you that if um, if I had to go to to battle with anybody, then it it would definitely be with you. Um, So uh, in 30 seconds, young man, you may sum up your contribution over eight weeks.
1: Oh, yeah, I just want to say, like, you know, thank you to you, Pops, and uh, thank you to all the listeners. So we've done the best job, you know, that we can, like considering, um, you know, we've never done this before. definitely improve in future and i expect we will like revisit things and and tidy them up a little bit over time um but no i, I really enjoy doing this and uh after a small break as as you said i'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll pick things up and and take the the history of britain britain further in one way or another um as i said we're we're only just really um you know like, you know, we're at the surface of, of, of British culture, but um, yeah, we've certainly um, come to the end of Anglo-Saxon um, Britain, um, uh, you know, the defining point in our history and, uh, you know, moving forward, you know, with the Norman invasion. It's, it's why we have our language as it is today. Um, um, you know, many, many of the words that we speak on a daily basis and uh, yeah, changed, changed England forever.
0: Right, so that's it. Uh, All at least, my intention is at the moment, listeners, and I hope this is something, um, you know, which is a wide appeal. um, I'm I'm actually very uh, motivated to do a series on the great Welsh kings, um, which I find very interesting. Uh, I have a very good client called Kevin Ashman, who is a uh, best-selling author written a number of books about uh, uh, the Welsh princes Uh, and of course one of the things that I say to Kevin which makes it very easy for me to read the books is because uh, the Welsh are fighting against my enemy as well the Normans Uh, so I I find it quite easy to read the books and and feel on their side. So anyway I think you'll have uh, that's probably something I might do with or without Callum in the next few weeks. Um, Callum's got many of his own things to do So I'd like to thank you now. Uh, hope you've enjoyed the series. Give us any feedback you want and any um, views you have over things you'd like us to cover in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.